This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Humor is steeped in belief. How we see the world shapes our jokes, and jokes shape how we see the world. I'm Ben Fort, and I've spent years creating comedy and practicing the Christian faith. These two worlds have different languages, and this miniseries is a place where they can talk. Whether you're a Christian, a comic, or both, let's explore where humor connects to your funny beliefs. Edgy comedians love defending edgy comedy. They also like to invoke the name of George Carlin. You don't like my tweets? George Carlin. He was a respected comedian and a free speech advocate, which came together in his stand-up routine, Seven Words You Can Never Say on Television, or a Christ and Pop Culture podcast. In a 2012 essay, edgy comedian Gilbert Gottfried defended edgy comedy, and he saved his Carlin quote for the end, like he's quoting Lincoln. It's the duty of a comedian to find out where the line is drawn and then step over it. With this kind of reputation, it was interesting when Carlin's 1990 Larry King interview resurfaced last year. He had this to say about a fellow comic. His targets are underdogs, and comedy has traditionally picked on people in power, people who abuse their power. Women and gays and immigrants, to my way of thinking, are underdogs. Ah, so George has boundaries. But in the same interview, he says, I would defend to the death the right to do everything he does. Ah, so George has personal boundaries. And as a stand-up comedian, he could do that. He was in control of his material. And stand-up needs an element of safety and free speech because the material is worked out in front of an audience. I moved to Chicago in 2009 to study comedy, and I brought with me personal boundaries. It didn't work. Because unlike the solo act of stand-up, sketch comedy is collaborative. Personal boundaries also fail us as we enjoy humor because when someone crosses a line, we don't have a way to talk about it beyond, hey, that's offensive. Before Chicago, I never had to think about the ethics of comedy. The humor rule of my family was some version of, don't be dirty and don't be mean. This worked great for creating comedy at home, at youth group, suburban public schools, and at a Christian college. They all had similar boundaries that I wasn't interested in pushing, so I kept not thinking about it. Then the fences fell down. It's not that the Chicago comedy scene rejected clean comedy, it was just one option among many. A preference. 
and not the most popular or trendy one. It was a community on a profanity bell curve with a few folks who default clean, a handful who default dirty, and most were somewhere in between. The whole spectrum was comedy, and your preferred spot was accepted if you could get a laugh. As I took sketch writing classes, I chose to keep writing in my family's clean, good-natured style, and it was respected. I never got a note from a teacher to add profanity. My classmates had different preferences. They didn't get notes to make it clean. Sometimes dirty jokes got cut, but not because they were dirty. It was because they weren't working. Same with clean jokes. Structure and execution reigned on dirty and clean alike. Because that's what we were taught. The structure and vocabulary of the craft. When a scene wasn't working, we were able to talk about it. And so, when a student wrote something offensive, it was addressed structurally. My teachers did speak up when derogatory slurs and stereotypes were used without a satiric angle. Something like, if there's an angle for joking about this subject, this isn't it. In other words, you didn't find the angle. You didn't pull it off. We were given a moral proverb, punch up, don't punch down, which is what George Carlin was talking about. If you bite, bite the one in power, senators, billionaires, popes, and conversely, don't beat up on an underdog. In my classes, punching wasn't about morality as much as execution. I was taught that it's not satisfying for an audience to watch a high-status character beat down on a low-status character. It was about the joke working. If you could get the teacher and class to laugh, you were unlikely to hear about punching. None of my scenes were flagged as problematic, but I didn't know what my boundaries were and definitely couldn't articulate them. This was a problem because comedy is collaborative. You can write a sketch by yourself, but then it has to be acted, directed, produced, and then performed alongside other writer's sketches before being received by the final collaborator, the audience. This process is mostly done in troops. That's the comedy word for band. And most of my friends were in two or three troops, also like bands. I wanted an ethical framework and a way to talk about it. Because structural critique is limited. What if something offensive gets a laugh? That means it feels like a good joke and a good angle. And the solution of the clean spaces I grew up in to say, hey, that's offensive or we can't do that, doesn't work in a low boundary environment without authority figures. You can write this kind of critique off as opinion, preference. We see the limits of these approaches in online discourse. Someone says, hey, you're punching down. And you quickly see different views on who's up and who's down. The accused often thinks they were punching up and see the critique as confirmation. Or you'll see, hey, that's offensive. No, it's not. George Carlin. Without a shared ethical framework, it's all subjective. As I searched for that framework, I had two criteria. 
One, it had to allow for actually good comedy. And two, it had to make sense to my collaborators. If it made being funny harder or was too based on personal values, it wasn't helpful. As a Christian, I looked to my faith. The Bible has a lot to say about money and justice, but nothing direct about modern planned comedy. It's got a couple of things to say about joking, like in Proverbs 26. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. And the don't be dirty rule of my family is based in part on Ephesians 5.4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Which is great if you want to hold to that personally, but it seemed to fail the shareability test. That crude kind of joking was accepted on the comedy spectrum, and I wasn't going to stop a rehearsal to say, well, the Bible says, to people who don't believe the Bible. I found myself googling things like Christian approach to comedy. At the time, there was a booming faith and work movement, a growing body of resources for connecting your career to your faith. As a millennial, I had a deep belief that if I could imagine an online resource, then it must exist. Surely, a comedian somewhere has written a treatise on this subject but alas, my faith would be tested. I could not find that resource. Was I, even, a millennial? But I did find writing from a Christian worldview, a talk that Pastor Tim Keller gave to a writer's group in his Manhattan congregation. He argues that every story lives in light of a larger story of good and evil, with protagonists working for good and antagonists working against good. The Christian meta-story is one of creation, fall, and redemption. The first two-thirds of this tale is that God created a good world, but because of sin, everything's a mess. This is fertile ground for humor. Comedy highlights what's off about the world, and Christianity has a name for the offness. Sin. Sin has a popular reputation as immoral behavior, but it's bigger than that. A brokenness that's hardwired in each of us, an ever-present capacity to destroy, hate, and kill. Despite our best intentions and discipline and truest beliefs, we can't seem to push it out. Instead, it's such a part of us that we weave it into the fabric of our communities and institutions. And it's chronic. A person or organization that is good and well-functioning today could easily fall tomorrow, and we see that happen all the time. On the bright side, this is great for humor. If everything is broken and even well-intentioned people can't help but break things, then we can make comedy about anything. If no area of life is beyond sin's reach, This is a healthy outlet for the comic impulse to joke further and push the envelope. In areas where people think we're fine, we can show how not fine we really are. Like Jesus, we can say, You think you're a good person because of this, but actually... The key, though, and it's a very big key, is we. 
we're not fine. My joke about hypocrisy is a joke about my own, or my potential for it. We're all horrible people. And we're beautiful. There's something good inside each of us that wants to make the world a better place, that loves, that hurts when others hurt, that seeks hope and peace. Even the worst of beliefs can't snuff that out. Not completely. The Bible opens with God creating the world, the sun and moon, otters and bluebonnets, and he said it was good. Then he created men and women in his image, or after his likeness, and said it was very good. This very good God-likeness is called the image of God, or Imago Dei, and it makes every person a sacred treasure. Believing this changes humor. If you believe your neighbor has inherent worth, you're not just worried about being careful so a Twitter mob doesn't attack. You value your neighbor and want to treat her with respect. These two ideas, the Imago Dei and sin, together make up the human condition. We find both lodged in our souls, the beauty and the horror, the blessing and the curse. And we find both in laughter itself. It can be a joyful gift or terribly cruel. There's a reason why maniacal laughter is a stereotype for bullies and supervillains. The Bible captures both sides. In Psalm 126, we see the beauty. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Compare this with the character Job, who lost his family and all his livelihood. He talks of the horror of laughter. I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. And Jesus told his followers, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Laughter here is a good and joyful thing. And it's coming. Then he flips it, saying, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Recognizing laughter's dark side keeps us from seeing it as an opportunity. In this way, laughter is like money. The goal of humor is laughter, and the goal of business is money. But there are options for getting money that are definitely evil, like killing or selling people, And there are a whole lot of shady options. But if cruel laughter exists, then we can't defend a joke by saying, you laugh because it's true. That assumes a good laugh and a good target. What if it's a bad laugh and a bad target, and they're laughing because they think it's true? If we can't trust laughs to tell us what's true, we have to ask, what's the joke here? And what's the target? Comedy starts in the realm of the normal, the expected, and then an unusual thing happens. Something's off. It may be something silly, like Will Ferrell playing the cowbell, or Key and Peele saying ridiculous football player names. Sometimes it's behavior, like Kristen Wiig and Rose Byrne one-upping each other in Bridesmaids to prove who is the better friend. And sometimes people themselves are off. 
In 2018, SNL cast member Pete Davidson joked that a congressman's eye patch makes him look like a hitman in a porno. His eye patch is from a war injury, and the outcry was so loud that they brought him on the show for an apology. Davidson said, It was a poor choice of words. The man is a war hero and he deserves all the respect in the world. According to the outcry and this apology, the eye patch joke was bad because it was about a war hero. Was it? Follow the logic. If a veteran does something terrible, sin, if you will, is she immune because she served? What if combat veteran Pete Buttigieg had been this year's Democratic nominee? Is he just off the table? The joke, what was off, was the eye patch. What if he wasn't a veteran and was just born with one eye? Or lost it in a freak accident, even an avoidable one? Is it okay to make fun of his physical appearance? And if you decide physical appearance is over the line, what happens to fat jokes? We need to ask if jokes are made at the expense of image bearers. Is a person the punchline? Are they off because they're a woman? Muslim? Christian? Gay? Black? Speaks poor English? Fat? Is that what's wrong with them? Is that what's off about them and the world? Or is it because they're a broken person who is selfish, arrogant, hateful, indifferent, or power-hungry, like me? Is the joke here that this woman is selfish because she's a woman, or is she a woman with the selfishness that infects us all? We need hypocritical characters who happen to be liberal or conservative, arrogant characters who happen to be Christian or atheist. Maybe you think you're a joke, that you're the thing that's off in this world, but you're beautiful, created by God in his wonderful likeness. In her stand-up special, Nanette, Hannah Gadsby reflects on her history of making her own pain the punchline and says, I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak, and I simply will not do that anymore. These questions of what's the joke and what's the target aren't just needed for Second City and Saturday Night Live. It's just as important in clean spaces, whether it's a family-friendly theater like comedy sports or a Christian stand-up performing for a church. You don't need profanity to joke that women are off, make fun of how people talk, or to play into some sort of us versus them. We need to be specific about targets that are off, because, whoa, that's offensive, by itself doesn't say why it's off, and an execution-based, this isn't working, doesn't address why this angle is harmful. We need to teach people to fish. The beautiful, horrible framework can be a shift in thinking, but I've found it to be freeing. It frees us to be humble when our target is off. If you believe that you're capable of mistakes, and even evil, you'll listen when people say your words or laughs are hurtful, regardless of your intent. There's freedom for preference. 
If we want a break from the darkness, we can joke or laugh at the silly and the pointless, as long as it doesn't gloss over or celebrate the dark. If we want a name for the darkness to help us process, we can joke or laugh freely as long as someone's inherent worth isn't the joke. We're also free to not laugh. If a comedy bit doesn't work for us, we don't have to jump to declare it's not funny. If it clearly passes the beauty horror test, and there's lots of room for debate uh, whether something does, but if something does pass the beauty horror test, we can just say it's not our cup of tea, or maybe nothing at all. There's freedom to laugh with our neighbors. Even without a shared theology, most people believe some version of the beauty and the horror. Now that I'm a writing teacher, I share the beautiful, horrible framework with my beginning students, and even without the religious underpinnings, it makes sense, allows for comedy, and hopefully encourages them to form their own moral framework. Maybe one day they could write on a show like The Good Place. The show's creator, Mike Schur, has talked about his Jason Mendoza character in beautiful, horrible terms, saying, He's an uneducated person who says stupid things. He's not just dumb. We're going to give him characteristics that make him a good, interesting person who's three-dimensional. He's incredibly loyal to his friends, almost to a fault. He has the capacity for true sweetness and goodness. Being a ding-dong is not all he is. Writer D.L. Mayfield confirmed this aspect in one of her Good Place recaps for Christ and Pop Culture, saying... No matter where you fall on the spectrum of religious beliefs, the good place has the same message. Humans are the worst, and humans are also capable of astonishing amounts of goodness, especially where you would least expect to find it. A Christian should feel free to laugh at a show with that philosophy, and a talented and lucky Christian writer would fit well in that writer's room. As a student, It felt like I was the only one who was uneasy with the lack of boundaries. I've since found out that's not true. Others had it worse. Because as a straight white man, my discomfort was just that. Discomfort. I wasn't the butt of the jokes. Not only can sexist or racist or homophobic material go unchecked in a classroom or writer's room, if it moves forward and gets staged or produced, Someone has to embody the joke. CBS created a diversity sketch comedy showcase to highlight underrepresented groups, but for years it served to further marginalize. According to Vulture, one of the showcase's casting directors demanded that Latino characters have Ricky Ricardo accents, gay men twirl across the stage and lisp, Asian American performers act foreign, and black actors black it up. These performers were made to be the joke. It wasn't just material that suffered from a lack of moral boundaries. In 2016, the front page of the Chicago Tribune read, Women in improv comedy detail a culture of sexual harassment and silence. One performer, who was in Chicago the same year as I was, said, I've had directors ask me out on dates, and when I've said no, they've punished me by taking away parts. Some stop talking to me completely. I've been grabbed. I've been kissed against my will. I've received harassing text messages, and I've been sexualized on stage 
for the sake of comedy, too many times to count. Later, she says, there were never any clear boundaries or discussion about it, and that contributed to the fear of saying something. She needed boundaries for protection from harm. This kind of darkness that was unknown to me, but well known to female and non-white performers, has been brought into the light thanks to movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter. Jokes, on the other hand, have always been public, and many have not aged well. As comedy continues to get more diverse, comedians are seeing increased scrutiny for jokes past and present. Some comics see this as a good thing. On an episode of the GIST podcast, Hari Kondabulu says, It felt like forever people didn't respect stand-ups as real artists, and now we're actually being respected as artists, because if you're criticizing us, it means that our words count and that you're listening. And many comics have adapted, changed, and grown. Vulture interviewed 13 comedians about the jokes they most regret. And no one blamed the new landscape. They wouldn't get those same laughs again, even if they could. But that's not everyone. Those who were comfortably at home, whose laughs and livelihood depended on low boundaries and low accountability, are now reeling and protesting, including some clean comics. Woe to you who laugh now. When I started in comedy, I was attracted to the beautiful, horrible framework because I wanted boundaries. It worked in a culture of low boundary and low accountability, and it's working now as the cultural winds shift. The jokes that are being criticized are jokes that make people less than image bearers. The Ephesians verse about filthy joking feels less puritanical now. The problem with the kind of locker room talk that almost derailed Trump's presidency is how it turns women into less than image bearers, something to be consumed and dominated. But, like all things, this new cultural landscape isn't completely good. We've swapped low boundary and low accountability for a highly polarized culture of us versus them. The temptation now is to speak to our side of an ideological fence and say, look at how broken they are. When they do something terrible, it's the rule, but when we break things, it's the exception. Any good over there is despite, any good over here is because. It's reflected in our comedy. The old Daily Show proverb, go for a laugh, not a clap, feels optional now. With a fractured media landscape, It's easier than ever to find humor that caters to people who think like you, that says, look how ridiculous they are. It's an election year, with two presidential candidates in their 70s. We're seeing jokes about their age and their mental and physical abilities. It feels like Biden's the joke or Trump's the joke. But the joke is on the elderly and people with disabilities. Image bearers. With a war mentality, we justify the use of unjust weapons. As we call broken things broken, we cannot believe or perpetuate the lie that we and our kind are above any of it. It's not the horrible they who are destroying the world, and it's not the beautiful we who will save it. 
we're all beautiful, horrible people, and our humor has to reflect that. And it has to reflect the whole story, creation, fall, and redemption. Literature professor Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor says satire is the ridicule of vice or folly for the purpose of correction. Pointing to truth by first pointing to error is its goal. Satire mocks, but it does so with a moral aim. To target sin is to joke with hope, a belief that a redeemed version of this person or group can exist. Humor that targets anything else is not satire, but hopeless mockery. The low boundary era is passing, and so will this one. There will be a day when we're not this divided and angry all the time, and we will be accountable for the jokes we've made. Woe to you who are comfortable now, whose laughs depend on and profit from the division and the outrage. But to those who are not at home, who just don't know whether it's a time to weep or a time to laugh, whose hopeful jokes support a vision of our beautiful, horrible reality, this will pass. And on that day, you will still be able to laugh. I'm giving you a homework assignment. As you encounter jokes, try to identify the target and be as specific as possible. Funny Beliefs is written and recorded by me, Ben Fort. It's produced by Jonathan Clausen. Artwork by Seth Haney, and this music is by me. And thank you to Tyler and Aaron, my CAPC editors. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Fort Worth. That's my name and my city. I'd love to connect there, or if you're listening during the run of the show, I record these episodes on a Monday night Zoom call. Afterwards, we get to talk about it, and if that sounds fun, I'd be happy to send you an invite. The beautiful, horrible framework is almost impossible to believe if everything you consume plays into an us-versus-them narrative. Christ in Pop Culture is a hopeful publication that seeks the good, the beautiful, and the true. You can support that kind of work for just $5 a month. Go to christandpopculture.com slash subscribe. That's subscribe like a writer in an underwater boat. 